So Ibrahim, did you have breakfast today? I didn't. I woke up slightly late, to be honest. And my breakfast was changing my baby's nappy. <laughs> can't imagine that being a very appetizing breakfast. No, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> Is that why you don't have breakfast anymore? Yeah, I basically don't have breakfast these days. I think it's just because it's like a mad rush in the morning to get out, isn't it? You know what? I don't have breakfast either. Oh, yeah. I was going to say we should get jaiwala, possibly. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'm feeling some karak chai this morning, you know. Now he's changed his tune, hasn't he, Kavzi? <laughs> I don't mind breakfast. I'm not against it. I'm just like, this is how spontaneous Ibrahim really is, people. He literally will, in the middle of filming, just order f- takeout. IFG News Roundup, episode four. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and welcome back to another episode of the News Roundup after a long hiatus. So it's been a while and a lot of stuff has happened and today we're going to discuss a very, very important issue and the issue that the entire world is talking about, Russia and Ukraine. Now the last time we covered this, it was mere speculation at that point but now ibrahim seems like a lot's happened and uh do you think world war three is imminent oh i don't know if world war three is imminent i think if the usa entered or if nato did something silly then i think we would be potentially in a world war three scenario however i think right now Joe Biden and, the, and NATO have been pretty clear that they don't necessarily think that they want to go in because of this precise reason. And I think that Russia is not particularly keen to continue either. And of course, we get a relatively biased perspective from people like the BBC. But my sense is that it isn't necessarily going very well for Russia. It's taking certainly a lot longer than they thought. And so, and the fact that they're talking and they're trying to get to a resolution here suggests to me that they want to make a face-saving agreement and then hopefully everyone's made their point. You know, the Ukrainians are kind of like, we've got our sovereignty and we're still happy. We might have had to give away a chunk of land, but Russia's happy that they've made their point to NATO that, you know, don't mess around with us. And NATO, well, I guess NATO don't necessarily win here, but yeah, I guess they win to the extent that they now have sanctioned Russia and Russia is now the open enemy as opposed to a hidden enemy. So yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I don't think World War Three is imminent. What are your thoughts? I think it's quite interesting, right? I was reading these um, news articles about how Vladimir Putin was very angry at his advisors because they did not tell him that Ukraine would have the ability to quite strongly resist. And obviously this war has taken quite a toll on Russia. Um, they've lost quite a lot of men at an alarming rate. They've lost a lot of resources. And now it essentially looks bad for them to quit. And like you said, like they need to save face to still maintain that image of being big bad Russia because that's what they're known for. But what we have seen is many of the oligarchs of Russia have fled from Russia and they're now like presiding in other nations to protect themselves. But I think what I find very interesting and I think the whole Muslim community is together on this and they've kind of not even just the Muslim community, international community really, have pointed out the blatant double standards in the way the refugee crisis of Ukraine was dealt with in comparison to the refugee crisis that we've kind of been witnessing from many non-white nations across 
the past decade or more, or even longer than that. And how we've seen, for example, in a matter of a few weeks, Europe has absorbed the same Europe that, by the way, said that they have no space for any refugees, have very easily absorbed two million people. So rightly so, I think many Muslims are very annoyed with this fact that, you know, it's the blatant double standards have become very clear that how when it was Syrian refugees that needed help, Europe had shut doors and said, there's nothing we can do. But when it was white refugees that needed help, suddenly the doors open. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. I think also white European refugees, I think, is an important distinction. There's a few things here. The first is I feel like it's a good thing in some ways because if anyone had any doubts about the two-faced nature of the Western or you know liberal democracies, to be honest, all countries, I think, then that's become really apparent. The way that I think the Russian population in the UK has been treated and the way that people are going completely bananas over showing their allegiance and support for Ukraine, I think is, you know, it's completely bizarre. Roman Abrahamovich and what happened to him with Chelsea, I think that's just completely extraordinary. You can't become someone who's, you know, who's, taught, who's very much welcomed and celebrated in, in the UK for a good couple of decades. And then overnight, you become this persona non grata and you're kicked out and you, you know, you're actually made to lose significant money as well as a result of that. I mean, I don't know if I suspect Roman Abrahamovich is not a particularly good man if he's involved in big business and big oil and all of that stuff. I don't know anything about him. But the double standards here, I think, are remarkable. And I think the second thought here is for the Muslim community, honestly, I feel like we should be trying to strengthen and support our own nations, our own Muslim majority nations, and making them places that are welcoming to other Muslims, but also places that are economically prosperous as well and have leadership that is open-minded and forward-thinking and also, I guess, to some extent, democratic as well. If we don't have that, then we're going to be in continuing in this situation where, you know, the refugees are created in Muslim countries, apart from obviously the Ukraine situation, and they come to Western countries because that's where, you know, that's the promise of freedom and the future and ease and tranquility. I would rather our own countries, Muslim countries, were actually those safe havens. And I think, you know, obviously this is a long-term vision that we'd have to execute on. But I feel like these moments really paint starkly that in some ways, a Muslim will always be a second-class citizen in a non-Muslim majority country. There's two things there. So I, I definitely agree with you. But do you think that it's a Muslim thing or it's purely a race thing? Because, you know, a lot of people have said that, look, even if you're a Christian Palestinian or a Christian African, to white Europeans, you're essentially all the same. You're just bunched up in this one category. Yeah, I think that's probably fair as well. And the other thing I wanted to ask is, I completely agree with you on investing in Muslim majority nations and trying to build them up. But at this point, we've only spoken about it kind of theoretically. What would be like practical things that Muslims can do day to day, average Muslim like me, like how can I build up 
nations back home as just this person? Good question. I'm not saying, by the way, that we absolutely must quit and go to Muslim countries as, you know, potentially lots that we can do here. But my view is that ultimately societies and cultures develop from the majority group, typically, and the majority group, you know, you want them to be Muslim in order for that culture and society to be such that it is Muslim, right, oriented. And that means that it probably makes more sense to work on countries that already have that in the first place. And practically what I think that means is probably a few things. One is to actively consider relocating or becoming a little bit more nomadic in your movements where you know you're not just london born and bred and that's it you live here you die here and that's it you are open to having a few stints in the middle east the subcontinent malaysia indonesia across the world and then i think the second thing is the internet is going to open up the world in a way that is you know, completely unprecedented, especially with the metaverse coming and what have you. And I feel like that is a great opportunity for Muslims to group together and create something different. And I think that then has an implication on uh, leadership and authority and decision making and governance as well in these digital landscapes as well. So let's see, let's see where it all plays out. But those will be the two lines of attack, you know, geographically, being comfortable with movement and then digitally being comfortable with this new space, this new digital landscape. I completely agree with that. What do you think about investing in these nations? As in like, for example, we know that in Pakistan, for example, where I'm from and where you're from, there's like huge investment opportunities, property investment, lots of developments being made. And, you know, there's, it's been advertised plenty in the UK here. What do you think? Is this a good idea for people to invest back in their home nations? Yeah, for sure. I don't know about like the specific investments in Pakistan. I think there's a bit of a bubble at the moment in the property market. But the broader trend long term around Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, the Middle East, Malaysia, Indonesia, these are all countries that have young populations and are growing very rapidly are digitizing very fast, have a lot of external investment coming into them and seem to be evolving from a technological perspective as well, pretty pretty rapidly as well. So I think all of that suggests that these are going to be growth areas for the future, particularly uh, when you compare it to the West, where uh, things have slowed down and stagnated. Across the West, I think you know birth rates are very low and I think the USA is possibly the only Western country that is still just peaking above like the growth birth rate that it should have. And that's, I think, mainly down to the Hispanic community, actually. And so you've got this situation where in 20, 30, 40 years time, it's going to be a very different landscape. And investment is all about future gazing and about seeing where the new emerging middle class is you know, coming out and parking your money there before it emerges, because that's where you start really kind of uh, making good returns. And that's actually the invest an investment strategy of many different venture capital investors as well. Makes a lot of sense. North Africa is probably another place to think about. Oh, fair. I know Egypt has quite a few developments going on, as does Morocco and such. So fair enough, fair enough. And on that note, let's move to a more positive story. So. We as Muslims know a very special time of year is coming up 
Ramadan is just around the corner. I think maybe like two weeks away, maybe yeah. less. And there's lots to look forward to. It's a joyous time of the year. Ramadan, despite us all giving up food and drink, is a time that we Muslims are buzzing with excitement. The air is filled with the strength of Iman. The mosques are full. The Muslim hand is generous. Tell us, Ibrahim, what are you looking forward to most this Ramadan? I'm looking forward to a bunch of things. The first is, of course, our um, Ramadan Charity Clarity Guide which has been launched yesterday. The thing that makes me really excited about this and the Zagat calculator is, you know, I feel like we are, as a community, inshallah, this Ramadan, going to be hopefully a lot more thoughtful about our giving. And then as we, you know, go forward, I want us to be more and more thoughtful and and to have real impact with our giving because it's you know that 100 150 million pounds that's donated every ramadan if that is donated in a clever strategic way you know 150 million pounds is a lot of money right and if we can deploy that in ways that are really quite impactful then the difference between the outcome could be 100 if not 1000x in terms of you know what output we get out of it so that's why I think it's so important for us to think about this carefully. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, I really love uh, pretty much everything that Iqbal does, Iqbal Nasim, who is working on a project at the moment called Transform My Prayer. I think, you know, Iqbal is, he's a very first principles thinker and he's focusing on really the things that matter to Muslims at like a infrastructure level, if you think about it from a human perspective, like at an infrastructural level for a Muslim, the two things that really matter are your Quran and your relationship to the Quran, your Salah, your relationship to your Salah, and also, you know, having a purpose and a vision and a mission. You know, I guess that's like an expansion of the concept of Tawheed as well and understanding, you know, what, what does your religion mean? And he's working on all of these three things. So, yeah, I've not signed up to his course, but possibly I should do. And, uh, and I think people should keep an eye out. I think he's doing something with the Pillars app as well on something to do with Salah. So that might be something to keep an eye on. Wow. Wow. You know, what? when I asked that question, I I was kind of expecting an answer like, you know, samosas and pakore, but you know, you gave us a, <laughs> gave us a real treat there. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's lots to be excited for. I know about... Ruafsa. Ruafsa is obviously the other one. Oh yeah, Ruafsa. That only comes out in Ramadan. <laughs> you know, what? it's funny because I never drink the stuff outside of Ramadan, but it's so integral to my experience of my parents, whenever we'd have iftar, like they they bring it out, and I couldn't stomach the stuff when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, yeah. When I when it got out, it was just always too sweet, and I think yeah. I like it in milk. I don't yeah, like yeah. it in like water. Water, yeah. So whenever I had it, it was just so sweet and like. But with milk, it's actually quite it's nice. It's quite nice, yeah. Especially at masajid and stuff. It's like a milkshake, isn't it? Yeah. Have you got, have you ever had the balls in it? You know, those little. Oh yeah, yeah, those little seeds. What are they called? The basil seeds or something. Yeah, something right? like that. Yeah, they're lovely. Well, they're a big thing now, aren't they? Bubble tea or something like that. Yeah. Oh, oh bubble tea, like that become a big thing. And I actually saw a Ruafsa bubble tea. bubble tea recipe on TikTok. Oh. So there you have it. Two exciting things that I'm aware of this Ramadan. So there's this one app being developed by Sheikha Maryam Amir from the USA. And it's called the Qari'a app. Like Qari'a, like 
قارئ male reciter قارئة as in like a female reciter but not القارئة uh, no <laughs> not the surah <laughs> and essentially what this is is which a, is a very different thing yes yes it is <laughs> which is a warning on the for the day of judgment calamity right? I think a yeah. calamity yeah exactly so yeah it's not the calamity app it's the reciters app but female reciters so essentially it's an app full of um, female reciters in the recitation oh. of the Quran. And um, Sheikha Maryam has developed this app or been part of developing this app in essence to highlight how often we there's no female voices in like Quran recitation and for our daughters to kind of mm. find someone that they can emulate and look up to. Because as we know, all the majority of reciters that are like very public or known are all male. And that's because of, you know, different conversations that the scholars have had on, you know, a woman reciting Quran in a mixed public. But at least this app provides it for, you know, if women want to go listen to it, then that's always there. So I think that's quite cool. And the second thing... I'm going to keep an eye on you, Kabzi. You better not be downloading that app. (laughs) (laughs) And the second thing that I'm really excited for is, uh, is just the positive spirit of Ramadan in essence. I think that, you know, it has been a long two years since COVID hit and a lot's changed and many people have lost people. Mm. But Ramadan brings with it an excitement and you just naturally end up going out of the house more, whether it's for Tarawih and stuff. So you you meet people, you pray with people, you have an immense love and uh, vigor towards the Quran. So I think that, you know, that's something that I feel Ramadan is a, is the time of year that everyone needs. It's like when you charge your battery. Yeah. So I feel like it's a very special time. But on the charity guide specifically, I wanted to ask Ibrahim, like, you know, we've got like 20 charities in there. And when we launched this, we had quite a few people saying, oh, but why is this charity not in there? And why is that charity not in there? Can you explain a little bit about what went through your mind when you were choosing these charities and why we didn't choose more? Yeah, for a start, it wasn't just me, it was a few different people in the team, but the high level thinking is that we wanted to go for impactful charities that we knew at least a little bit about already, because that way we can you know, research them and speak to them more effectively. If a charity is not in there, that's not to say that not they're not doing good stuff. It's probably the fact that we don't know enough about them or we just didn't know about them at all. And there's been a number of charities that have reached out to me after this whole thing happened, which I would actually love to have included. So, you know, things like my foster network or my family group, what the work they're doing, I think is absolutely fantastic and really high impact. I think people like Orphans in Need, One Ummah, um, you know, there's so many others out there that have, I guess, come to my attention that I hadn't really you know, known about or hadn't, hadn't really looked into um, too much myself. And I think it'd be great to make sure that we think about them and make sure that we cover them for the analysis in future in future editions. But I think the other thing is that we also have to be relatively editorial about this as well, because the point of this is not a directory. The point of it is that there is actually some thought that goes into what is included isn't included. And yes, there were charities that, and I'm not going to name them, that missed out to be in this guide because uh, we weren't really sure about their ethical practices or there'd been some kind of scandal or charity commission guidance on them that you know give, gave us food for thought or gave us you know reason to pause. And I think that's part of the reason why we're doing this guide. This guide isn't a massive love-in with, with charities. It's 
us taking very, very small baby steps in helping our ummah in a, go in a direction where we sincerely believe that we should be going in. And clearly we're not there right now. And the Muslim charity structure and the Muslim charity industry isn't set up for this new world that we would like to take our community in the direction of. And so necessarily that's going to mean that a whole bunch of people, they're not going to be covered. But the idea is that if you start this movement off, if you start encouraging people, then more and more charities are given the permission to act and do things that will be more appropriate for this future world. In other words, really, this guide isn't for the charities at all. This is a guide for all of us to start thinking more and behaving in a different way when it comes to our donations. Because once that starts happening, the charities will just, you know, adjust to match that. Yeah, I definitely second that. You know, when you pitched the idea of the charity guide to me first, like I found it really fascinating because I'd never actually thought about charity as investment in the way that like, you know, we put in this guide, like the idea of diversifying and having different areas to put your charity in for different purposes and eventually seeing the fruit of that labor come much later is was something quite novel to me. And I think to many people, because usually like, let's be fair, right? The charities with the big marketing budgets kind of take everything. And usually what happens is that the ones with the most emotive pictures and adverts, I mean, you know, you see starving children in Yemen and people displaced and living in tents, which are all very urgent causes that need our support as well. But these are charities that take all the attention. And then there's so many other causes that actually need to be funded for the Muslim community in the UK to strengthen itself and to serve the needs of the Muslim community here that, that get ignored completely. I really strongly resonated with this guide and the message that it gave out. And inshallah, I do hope that we can, we can in future, future iterations of the guide, you know, include many other charities, um, dive deeper into them. I'd really like to get into their financials, get into their history, and then hopefully get more people on board from them, have more exclusive interviews and deeper analysis into that. But, you know, we did do 20 charities for this guide and it turned into 62 pages. So uh, if we did a 40, I don't think anyone would read a 100 and... <laughs> 140 page document. Yeah, that's true. One thing that I really like about the guide is the portfolios that we've created. So they, these are like preset portfolios with a mix of charities in them that you can donate to literally at a touch of a button using our Zakat calculator. And you know, our Zakat calculator, the fact that it calculates Zakat for like cryptos and NFTs and stuff makes it pretty unique. I think it's a great project and I hope that, you know, we welcome feedback on it. So guys do feel free to drop your comments um, email us and let us know what you liked and what you didn't like. We're very keen to hear it. So, yeah. Any final comments before we end? No, not really. I think it's, uh, I love the fact that as part of our work with IFG, we can do things like this, that hopefully, you know, we've got the intention that it leads the Muslim community to a better future. And, you know, if we can even achieve like half of that or 20% of that, hopefully we'll have done a good thing. Inshallah. Um, so, yeah. Inshallah. And with that, we conclude. Jazakallah khairan for joining us today for another episode of the News Roundup. Keep in touch and inshallah, you'll see us in another fortnight. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum